Well, evening, ladies and buds. Welcome to the, the next episode of the Rouseabout podcast. Um, tonight, we we're going to be looking at sort of a general analysis of Australian foreign policy with regards to the uh, fall of Singapore in 1942. So for, the, for those that don't know anything about the event, to, to briefly summarise Australian foreign policy up to that point, it always consisted essentially of being completely reliant on the British Navy for the defence of Australia, and then in return, this sort of general understanding that Australia would send its military overseas to support Britain in whatever conflicts it had in return for this sort of guarantee of protection. And up until this point, you know, we'd always seen the the British Navy and their sort of colonial forces as essentially this unstoppable force, at least within East Asia and the Pacific, and as something able to defend us from anyone in the region. Now, obviously, Australia at the time, having a population of about 6 million, we were very aware of the fact that you had nations like China, like Japan, that outnumbered us a million to one, which were at the time all facing shortages of resources. Japan in particular, for you know, decades prior to this event, had been acutely aware of their shortage of resources in their homeland, which had led to sort of expansionist foreign policies in places like Manchuria, we are trying to colonise relatively empty land for resources, meanwhile being a massive continent with only six million people in a, a relatively empty part of the world. Or, yeah, we'd always felt that we needed some large foreign power to defend us on the off chance that they ever decided to come south. At the time, during the 40s and for a while beforehand, the uh, port of Singapore on the Straits of Malacca had had always been the British main centre of power in the region. It, ha having a deep water port in the Straits of Malacca, which is arguably the most important sea lane in the world, with the possible exception of the Suez Canal, it was it was yeah it was a perfect location from which to sort of base their navy and control the whole region. And being an island off the coast was again relatively easy to fortify. And yeah, the island had long served as the sort of main base for the British in the area. So when the war first broke out. Australia, in in the old tradition, sent most of their forces overseas, either to initially bound for Europe and then after the evacuation of Dunkirk, rerouted most of them to North Africa. But the idea being to defend Britain and you know whatever endeavours they were going through, with the understanding that the British, based out of Singapore, would be defending us. However, we did send, and I want to say about forty thousand. I can get the number up here of, of our own men in into Singapore. To join the British garrison there, although they were all placed under the command of British senior officers led by Lieutenant General Percival. Um, at, at, the, at the time, the Japanese were still, for the most part, occupied in China and weren't really seen as a primary threat, as opposed to the blitzkrieg that was happening at the time in Europe and then later Rommel and the Italians in North Africa. But then suddenly, with the fall of France, Germany essentially gifted French Indochina to the Japanese, meaning that they suddenly were around 3,000 3, k's closer almost overnight. And within a few weeks of this, Japan also made an agreement with the Kingdom of Thailand, which gave them free military access th through the nation, meaning this suddenly within a matter of weeks they went from being thousands of kilometers away in northern and central china to being only a few hundred k's away at the northern tip of the british colony of malaya the japanese army of the time was real in southeast asia was fairly small only consisting of around twenty thousand troops led by um general tomoyuki yamashita however these were considered some of the best of the best within the japanese army and yeah, quick, quickly advanced into Malaya. The British force in their hand was much larger at around 
80,000, including the Australian and as well as some Indian garrisons. However, the le- the leadership simply just did not see it as important. Percival, who they sent out, was m- largely a nepotism hire for the British Army. It came from, you know, a wealthy family, etc., and thus, you know, was expected to be promoted to a senior position, yet no one important actually wanted him doing anything of you know, real serious nature for their na- national security, hence why being posted off to the Pacific, which for the British was sort of a who cares in comparison to somewhere like France, you know, their immediate back door. And essentially every time there was any major conflict, he just ordered these constant retreats, falling back slowly through Malaya over the course of about three weeks without ever seriously engaging the Japanese. At, at the time too, they were largely taken by surprise in that many of these garrisons here had never fought an Asian power before. Neither the British or the Australians had gone to war with an Asian nation in the last 100 years or so, with the exception of the Boxer Rebellion and the Opium Wars, both of which were very easy Western victories over these technologically underdeveloped and badly led Chinese armies. And thus there was an an attitude that this would sort of be a walkover and the minute we fire off a few warning shots, they'll run screaming. So yeah, the minute they encountered any sort of real resistance, they sort of fell, fell back unsure what to do. Um, at the same time, si- si- Singapore had always been intended first and foremost as a naval and more recently air force base as opposed to a an, ar- an army base. It was, after all, an island off the coast. And, and any defence of it would, would be based around primarily the Navy and Air Force, you know, supported by small local garrisons of the infantry. However, right before and even during the campaign, the British were continuing to pull out their Navy and almost all their Air Force to bring them back towards the home islands to defend Britain during the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, meaning that by towards the end of the campaign, there are only about 30 aircraft in all, or military aircraft, that is, in all of Singapore. And, and so although the Allies outnumbered the Japanese almost four to one. They, yeah, they not they lacked the, yeah the stable supply lines, but also obviously having vast aerial superiority was a massive morale boost for the Japanese. Yeah, it's when, when you're having bombs etc. rain down on you from above from this, you know, what was in your mind is you know, backward little you know a- Asian jun- jungle people. It's, yeah, they were taken aback and essentially retreated all their forces towards the. Uh, towards this island fortress in Singapore. Um, f- from there, the Japanese amassed most of their forces in Johor, which is the southernmost principality of the Malay Peninsula, which, whilst nominally part of the colony, was still largely ruled by local leadership in the form of the Sol- Sultan of Johor, who happened to be a close friend of General Percival. So when Yamashita then based his sort of whole command post and lookout over out of the Sultan of Johor's palace, which overlooked sort of the straits and onto the island of Singapore, the British knew he was there watching them and yet refused to bomb him precisely because Percival didn't want to bomb his good friend's palace and you know, damage the building. Um, the Japanese then spent a, spent a week dry, every night driving large convoys of trucks with the lights on towards the west of Johor, opposite you know, the west of the island of Singapore, and then later later on in the night driving them back with the lights off to sort of create this idea that they were amassing in the west and thus percival put all his british troops in the in the west of singapore whilst leaving only a small garrison of australians guarding the beaches in the east so when the japanese then attacked in the east they immediately gained a beachhead but at this point rather whilst yeah the singapore itself was still a large city with 
numerous artillery guns and fortifications and a garrison that outnumbered them four to one. They then just immediately surrendered the city and the entire garrison without a fight because they didn't like the undignified idea of street fighting and urban warfare. And thus, overnight, essentially the entire Pacific Army, Navy, etc. of the British, and by extension Australia, were all sold out just because... They couldn't be bothered. Now, what do you mean by the undignified nature of street oh, fighting? Just, oh, I mean, there's you know traditional European notions of sort of honourable warfare, you know, men in nice, neat lines in open field ba- battles, whereas st- street warfare was, yeah, firstly, you know, much more brutal hand-to-hand fighting and less pleasant, but also from a general's point of view, much more difficult to coordinate, much more risk of, you know, civilians getting harmed, of, you know, gr- guerrilla fighting or of your know, d- damage to people and property, et cetera. And yeah, they, they, they didn't, they didn't, well, Percival didn't like the idea. And whilst normally anyone in this situation would have significant oversight from the government in this sense, the, the government back in London just couldn't care less. So they just told him, yeah, surrender. Why not? It's, it's, you know, one less thing for us to think about, one less thing for us to worry about so that we can focus purely on what to them was the far, far more important issue of an impending German invasion of Britain. But meanwhile, to Australia, Singapore was the gateway to Australia. This is, you know, our entire defence in the Pacific. This was a matter of life and death. But because they'd been placed under this British leadership who just couldn't care less, they'd had their entire garrison surrendered overnight without a fight. Um, <clears throat> it looked a bit too much like... When this with the, yeah, with the collapse of the of the Netherlands, the Dutch, the Dutch colony of Indonesia largely collapsed and the Japanese overnight and we were left with literally a couple hundred of the you know, conscript militias defending New Guinea as the sole defence against this 20,000-strong army of you know, the best of the best Japanese troops coming towards Australia before finally they were able to pull out some units from North Africa, the professional army, and bring them into New Guinea. But even this was a massive political fight with the British High Command attempting to to ban Australians from leaving North Africa to come home to defend Australia. And it was, yeah, only when they sort of threatened mass mutinies and there were large-scale desertions, they finally conceded and let four battalions go home. Incredible. Um, so, yeah, that that they're, they're a brief summary of the event itself. But, yeah, in, in terms of the sort of fallback from this, Menzies, who had been Prime Minister at the start of the war, was always known for being a major Anglophile. He, you know, in his head was a citizen of the empire first and an Australian second. And he'd been very quick at the onset of the war to throw his full support behind Britain and to send basically our entire army overseas. And while it's still, still was only ever rumours at the time, at, at the time there was a general belief that he hoped that by getting senior enough in Australian politics, he could eventually work his way up to you know, the much more rewarding goal of going into British politics, which this, of course, being back when an Australian citizen was legally a citizen of the British Empire. And yeah, by ingratiating himself to the British through you know, using Australia to defend them, he could one day get further up in, in the politics there. But yeah, after this event, we just sort of see this general disillusionment within the Australian population of this idea that, well, firstly, the British care less about us, but Secondly, that even if they could, that they are able to defend us. And under the next Prime Minister, John Curtin, who took over in 1942, we then see Australia from this point on more or less abandoning the outward notion that they are a part of the empire. They still sort of make, you know, superficial gestures. We still have the flag. We still sing God Save the Queen. But in terms of their foreign policy from that point on, they 
abandoned this policy of just doing what Britain wants them yeah. to. And it became apparent start courting much we closer needed to out. defend ourselves. Yeah, and firstly, start courting much closer relations with the Americans, who became our primary ally, ally from 1942 through till today. But just, yeah, more, more generally, it created this real sense that we are an independent nation and we are allies with people because they can help us rather than because it's, you know, our honor, honorable you know, duty to defend the empire. Which, I mean, a large part of it, just, too, is just we never really had any genuine existential threat to Australia before. We'd, you know, we'd always had the luxury of being able to make foreign policy decisions based off what was ethical or what was our duties as opposed to just what will keep us alive. And this was just a real wake-up wake call that these big Asian countries to the north can invade us and, and will, given the chance. And no one is coming to save you. And yeah, well, and no one cares enough to save you unless you know, unless you force them to. Well, yeah, they're, 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 there's the spiel, but it's uh, it's quite funny and coincidental because it almost falls within about the same time frame as the fall of the Philippines, and under extremely similar circumstances, although much greater numbers in the Philippines, like Japanese uh, Japanese air superiority with a unprepared force being the US, and that really it, the MacArthur, MacArthur's withdrawal to Australia um, probably cemented that US relationship even closer, I would imagine. And I suppose the Americans, in a sense, had been, they were in a similar spot in that they'd always been, you know, making foreign policy decisions off, you know, very you know, ab- abstract notions of, you know, we're the land of the free and we, you know, we can only, we only need to look inwards. You know, this is the, this is our manifest destiny, you know, with things like the Monroe Doctrine, and this was again for them a wake-up call that outside forces can and will attack you unless you really engage with the outside world in a meaningful way. And so, in a sense, yeah, they they, they were forced to start interacting with us as much as we were forced to start interacting with them. It uh, could be said that um, before, say, the Americans before World War Two, we couldn't join up with them and the British after 1947 with the independence of India weren't really strong enough to be a force in the or in our region. No, and we, yeah, we see going forward after that, obviously, in, yeah, the late, late 50s, they, well, 1954, they did fight the, a successful war in Malaya against the communist guerrillas, but for the most part over the 20 years following, they yeah, gradually lost sort of whatever influence they had in the region. But so, yeah, it, it was an inevitable process, but yeah, at the same time, this was sort of the event that just kick-started the sort of beginning of the decline. And, and, and in a sense, too, like we, we weren't the only ones relying on Singapore. Like the, the Indians and, you know, B- Burma, Indonesia, et cetera, had all, had all, everyone in the region had kind of been relying on the British as, you know, or the Pax Britannica, if you will, to defend them. And yeah, it, just as much as it sort of disillusioned us, it also disillusioned the Indians and everyone else in the region to this idea that the British cared about them or could defend them if they wanted to. Um. I have a question. Was mm-hmm. Singapore was Singapore retaken or was it still in Japanese hands in 45 when they surrendered? Suppo- supposedly in late September, at, well, as of 45, the Allies had just were sort of wrapping up their campaign in Borneo and the surrounding islands. And there was a plan already being devised and sort of you know, with the logistics being prepared, landing craft put together, etc., for a naval invasion of, of Singapore. Um, also, supposedly, the um, local sort of resistance groups were planning a large uprising, you know, similar to what happened in places like Warsaw at the at the time. Although that said, it's unclear to what extent both of those are sort of people, you know, 
retrospectively say, oh, yeah, you know, oh, we had him on the ropes. Any minute we would have taken them to sort of save embarrassment. But, yeah, supposedly there were plans to retake it within the next few weeks as of when the bomb was dropped. But, no, it was still in Japanese hands. And the, the, the disaster, too, it wasn't purely just national security thing, too, in that the Allies sort of thought, oh, you know, we just don't want to waste any casualties in Singapore because, you know, it's just unimportant to us. You know, why, why make British people, you know, British forces die over this, thinking that surrender was an alternative to dying when, in reality, the, the Japanese prisoner of war system, which was largely based out of major prisons such as Changi on Singapore, as, as well as many more of the prisoners being taken into Southeast Asia for work on sort of Japanese infrastructure projects such as the Thailand-Burma Railway was absolutely brutal and was shown to be brutal throughout the sort of several weeks of the campaign before the surrender. I can't remember the name of the battle off my head, but one of the very first, in the first few days of the Battle of, of Malaya, that Japanese captured 430-something prisoners and just had most of them burnt alive, including most of those being wounded. So, yeah, the, the, it was already very clear to anyone bothering to look that surrender was not a pleasant option. But, yeah, again, it was just these sort of rush decisions and lack of foresight. And between a quarter and a third of those taken prisoner ended up dying before 1945 in captivity. And... Yeah, we're just generally kept under brutal conditions. You know, tropical diseases running rampant in all the camps, mass starvation, malnutrition, harsh punishments, etc. And, and so, yeah, far, far more died in captivity as a result of that surrender than any estimate would put. You know, the likely casualties of sort of you know, defending to the death in Singapore. Speaking of uh, Changi, the uh, mm. the chapel constructed there by uh, Australian POWs is now actually, it's been reconstructed and it's uh, got its home in Duntroon where the Royal Military College is. And I believe the padre that ran the chapel in Singapore uh, retired as the oldest, uh, the highest ranked padre uh, within the Australian Defence Force ever, as far as I'm, I'm aware. Mm. Actually, no, I have, have heard of that chapel and the was yeah, discussing it the other day in the context that it's supposedly during all the, I don't know how much you know about sort of the Vatican II reforms in the Catholic Church, but when, yeah, m almost all churches in the country were redesigned to sort of fit more, more kind of, yeah, modernist ideals for the church, no one wanted to change that particular chapel because it had been, was sort of, you know, half a chapel, half a museum and it had been built by the prisoners of war and so it was the only chapel in Australia to still maintain things like old trails through the whole, through the 60s and 70s. So, um, it's actually, it's really small, actually. It's it's more of a, more of a hut. It's um, quite outdoors. I think it's open on all sides. It's got some small walls, but it's, um, it's open air. Um, it's actually quite a, quite a picturesque little building, I reckon. But yeah, I, mean, I suppose the, yeah, the, the, the question with the whole topic sort of going forward is then, you know, to, to what extent are we still in the same situation now? I mean, uh, yeah, Australia, in in the years following, you know, the immediate fallout of the war, we saw things like, you know, the Fortress Australia program and Populate or Perish, where sort of, yeah, making massive efforts to try and make ourselves self-reliant for our defence, un you know, under the understanding that we, we had to be. And, so, yeah, through that, you know, trying to acquire nukes unsuccessfully um, with, yeah, the, both the British and Americans promising to give us nuclear weapons if we let them test, let, let them test them on Australian soil. And then, the, yeah, the British ultimately going back on their word. And then, yeah, the, the Populate or Perish scheme, which yeah, did massively increase Australia's population from about 8 million through to 20 million sort of over a f few short decades. Well, on this and, topic, I was going to ask... Um, 
How does the transition work between, um, you know, this this period and, you know, seeing Australia's involvement, even military training mm. with Indonesia, um, and, you know, it, it looks from the outside like a complete 180. Well, there is probably a large expansion of Australian forces uh, assisting and on exchange with uh, Indochina and like Pacific neighbours. Um, they send uh, army cadets here or their officer cadets and we send uh, no officer cadets to them because our institution is obviously the best. Um, however, they do. we do send uh, fully trained officers on exchange program uh, to their military academies. And yeah, I mean, a lot of that does sort of come out of that same, menta- well, same mentality of, you know, not necessarily being self-reliant for defence, but at least sort of diversifying out of it our defence in that way, you're no longer reliant on one ally, but you know, rather you're know, working with you know, various nations in the region to sort of secure you know, m- mutual defence. But uh, that said, you know, as, as you know, modern technologies such as aircraft carriers and nuclear weapons, etc., come to you know, more and more dominate inter- international war, very much returning to that old paradigm of you know when battleships dominated the the world, where you know, s- small nations like us do need to. Of ally with large, you know, large nations such as, in this case, America, for our own defence. So we see now a very, in a way, very similar situation now with Australia going into places such as Afghanistan, nominally to, you know, out of an altruistic desire to secure peace, but in practice, primarily just to ingratiate ourselves to the Americans to secure things like the ANZUS Treaty, which in return supposedly guarantees American protection from these large, much larger nations in our own immediate area, which realistically we could never do anything against on our own. Did this, was the outcome of the fall of Singapore at all a shock to... Anyone else apart from Australia? Do they have any sort of change in perception oh, oh, of certainly. Britain in the wider scale? Oh, certainly. I mean, like I was saying earlier, just for your immediate region, all, all these you know, areas like you know, India, Indonesia, etc., that all kind of you know, relied on the Pax Britannica in the region. It was you know suddenly they were no longer this invincible force that we can all rely on in exchange for sort of doing what they say. But yeah, more more generally, it was just a it was a well. I mean, we'd already seen Asian powers defeating Europeans in sort of conflicts beforehand, such as um, the um, Russo-Japanese War in 1904. But this was a the preeminent European power in you know their preeminent colonial base being very easily defeated by yeah a non-European nation and was in a sense a very clear sign you know, the writing was on the wall for the whole European colonial world order and yeah the, the world is moving towards a much more unipolar um is there a, uh... in the end we did end up ultimately ended with a very kind of bipolar system with just the USSR and America running the show in the fallout as kind of all the other great powers like France, Britain, Japan, etc. all sort of destroyed themselves through the war. But yeah, at, at the time, that was very much the attitude was that sort of the old, the old order is clearly gone. Could you draw a parallel with, a, you know, another empire in history and a sort of watershed moment which saw, you know, uh, a seemingly perfect face now bear a mark, kind of show its mortality. I mean, I mean, the the Russo Japanese War, which I mentioned, is I suppose a, was a good example. That that was the first time that a, a European power had sort of lost a you know, an, lost total war to a non-European power in well in sort of hundreds of years at the time. Um, that, that that said, I suppose particularly for the British, there was 
a degree of you know, that they, they did kind of look down on the Russians as not really European. But at the same time, it was still, you know, the, they were still using all the same basic bureaucratic systems and technological systems, etc. So, but yeah, the, the, the significance, I think, was more not so much that they were beaten at their best so much as that what was supposed to be their best, they just couldn't care enough to defend. Like, they, they didn't have the resources or the interest to defend this as opposed to that they couldn't which i mean yeah, every, yeah obviously everyone would have known you know, this isn't britain at its height this is britain while fighting a major war but it was just sort of this general attitude of we don't care it's only the colonies you know that's expendable which kind of yeah opened everyone's eyes in the region and caused them all to you know if if, if they don't think of us as as them then we are, why should we think of ourselves as part of britain do you think that uh, maybe the the subsequent taking of colony after colony of the British Empire probably led to the the eventual downfall of it post post war as like as with India in 1947 like we see uh, like independence movement over and over again in in a lot of uh, British colonies. I mean, it, yeah, India is a slightly different situation that it was never actually occupied, but certainly in places like Malaysia, Singapore, etc., you the the occupation sort of. Yeah, destroyed all the local British leadership, but by by extension, that then meant that sort of what little local leadership, if anything, got more pa- got more more power just sort of through you know, the the vacuum that was left, and you know, in creating your know, local resistance movements, you know, guerrilla forces to fight the Japanese, which the British would have been completely supportive of. It then meant that when when they came back in 1945, there were now there was now a local leadership and you know proper local you know military forces and you know people with ex- military experience and you know an, his- an experience of resisting large empires that could then lead, lead revolts against against them aside from just the purely cultural impact in, in india in a sense was probably much more like australia there in that they they just felt you know felt used you know Brit- britain will take our troops sort of send them off to fight in, in their wars whilst you're not actually caring enough to defend us and then just, yeah, s- surrender us just becomes too much effort and then kind of, yeah, well, yeah, expecting us to continue to defend them. And yeah, by yeah, put, putting it just that little bit more strain on the system, it just kind of showed that it was all one-sided. Yeah, interesting. And considering a lot of the, I would say, the, the pushback from Allied forces in the Pacific for the, particularly, I would say, the smaller nations as most people would know uh, the U.S. really focused on the island hopping campaign in the Pacific, and to some extent, the U.S. Army uh, in New Guinea. But a lot of those smaller nations, uh, particularly Indonesian islands, um, Borneo, etc., uh, often taken taken on by Australians and occasionally uh, Australian special forces or an early version of that. And yeah, yeah, in a sense, you could. I mean, we'd, all, we'd already intervened in New Guinea in 1914, but for the most part, this was sort of our first time really taking an active sort of you know, leadership role in our own region. Like, up until this point, we'd always just been you know, there as a kind of a lackey of the British, whereas we now see ourselves you know, taking on this sort of independent foreign policy in Indonesia, in New Guinea, as a bit us being you know, the local great power that was, or middle power, I suppose, that was sort of there defending them. As, as Australia as opposed to as the empire. Yeah, I think I think that sort of set the conditions for our response to the Malay emergency and then probably subsequently uh, Vietnam as well. Obviously, Vietnam, uh, the British completely avoiding. Yeah, and, and I feel there's still largely a popular myth in Australia that which, you know, we kind of like to perpetuate because Vietnam ended up being, 
you know, being ultimately a defeat. Like, you know, we like to blame it all on them. That, you know, this was just America dragging us into their colonial war. When in reality, it was actually quite the other way with us being, you know, very heavily encouraging them to get in, as involved in Southeast Asia as possible, sort of on our behalf. We, you know, we, we do you think there's a parallel there? With the, do you think there's a parallel between America seeing defeat in Vietnam and Britain, Singapore, mainly in terms of losing face? Um, I mean, I mean, certainly a, a parallel. I, I wouldn't say it had quite the same consequences in that yeah, no, no, people never really expected the same thing of the Americans as they did the British. Like for the British, it was, you are our empire, you know, you are our citizens, our subjects, and we are obligated to protect you. Whereas with America, it was, whilst, you know, so you can certainly talk about the American empire. There was never, there was never an empire on the map. It was always just, we have a mutually beneficial alliance. And, you know, now the alliance has stopped being mutually beneficial. We're going to get out of here. But there was never quite the same sense of betrayal. In you know, we, we were always very aware that, you know, we were using an alliance with America for our own personal gain. And, you know. Ah, right. That, I meant less in terms of the alliance. Was, I meant more in terms but of yes, simply, it's, it's, it was a similar perception of America. Of them, in terms of them losing face. That, that said, the Vietnam War was, in a sense, a success in that, you know, after the successful rebellion in Algeria and, the late 50s against the French, the French Indochina sort of thought, oh, if they can do it, we can do it too. And they rose up against the French. And then, yeah, the Americans sort of, you know, did, you know it was this domino effect and you know, the Americans wanted to stop this, then intervened. And although the, you know, Vietnam ultimately won, it, I mean, in the process, they had every major city completely leveled to the ground. They had almost 20 years of near constant fighting internally and externally, ma massive casualties, you know, millions dead and it kind of in that sense achieved the desired result in that other countries looking on you know e even if they thought it was possible you know that wasn't something you wanted to go through it just wasn't worth it and so in terms of discouraging future you know copycat revolutions it actually worked quite effectively which yeah that was always very much the goal for us and the americans it was you know defeat so South, defending South Vietnam was ultimately just a tool to achieve that main goal of stopping future revolutions in other countries. And mm, I okay. suppose as as for Asia, it worked really. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you had the you had Khmer Rouge and Lao, but that 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 was it really. You, you never saw it sort of spreading further into Myanmar, Thailand, Malaysia, etc. Um, do you have any like follow up recommended reading on the fall of Singapore or the? Well, campaign before it um in terms of specific books not nothing particularly comes to mind one thing i was flicking through just earlier today which might be interesting is um it's called the wave report which if you know, I mean, i've been looking at this mostly from an australian perspective but this arthur wavel was sort of the head of british foreign policy in asia or part one of the heads of the office there who wrote a report sort of after singapore trying to sort of explain his you know what what, what went wrong and he essentially tried to, I mean, while he did sort of acknowledge several failures, in a large part tried to blame it all on the Australians and on the colonial troops. And it's kind of, you know, quite reminiscent, I suppose, of the whole break of Morant affair, just, you know, passing it all off as unruly colonial troops that, you, you know, w kept running away and wouldn't obey orders. And, you know, they couldn't fight because they were all just, you know, too busy you know, drinking and looting, etc. which there was very little on the ground evidence to support any of these claims, but it was this same sort of British attitude of just, you know, when anything goes wrong, blame the colonials. I do have... Whilst, uh, you know, whilst like, in the meantime, uh, obviously, the popular myth for everyone else was to sort of blame it all on the British. Well, I'm sure we... 
there were Australians that did things wrong leading to it. It's yeah, but both sides sort of had this very clear popular myth, which, in a sense, in a sense, the popular myth is almost more important than the actual events. In that, that's what people kind of base their decisions off going forward. And yeah, both both groups totally blamed the other for the failure. I've got um, I've got one book recommendation. It's not Singapore specific, mm-hmm. but it is uh, Southeast Asia um, specific. Um, and. British and colonial forces. Uh, it's called Special Operation Southeast Asia, 1942 to 1945 by David Miller. Um, and it just sort of gives a general detail of um, special operations undertaken by British and colonial forces uh, within the region. Uh, it's based off um, family records and off of military records as well. So uh, after action analysis and things like that. It's um, very analytical to read you mean like interviews from family about stories that were shared with them yeah somewhat but it also looks at um official report um from the military at the time so it's a bit um it's a bit it's got a bit of jargon in it but it's um it's pretty interesting it's a good it's a sort of a good insight into the small teams that were really causing havoc to the japanese at the time yeah nice all right i'll give it sorry just repeat the name to the listeners uh so it's by david miller and it's called Special Operation Southeast Asia, 1942 to 1945. Oh, I think yeah. it's part of a series. All righty. Well, unless anyone has some, some new turn to take on this, I say we uh, wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy with that. Yep. No I'm need to happy to, stretch it out. Happy to wrap up. Yeah, that, well, uh, um, that was yeah, this, the, the, the second episode of uh, the Natives Rouse About podcast. Uh, th- thank you all for listening. Um, Obviously, we're still getting in, into the hang of things, but um, yeah, I reckon it was a decent effort. and. Yeah, look forward to seeing you guys all next week. Catch you, mate. Yeah, beauty. Bye-bye.